Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We tend to be pretty measured in our use of profanity on this podcast, but holy shit, what a Supreme Court term just ended. It was the first full term in which the court was under the solid control of a block of five justices, all drawn from the rightmost sliver of the legal community, the culmination of a spectacularly successful 50-year Republican effort to remake the court that had decided, among other landmarks, Roe versus Wade. The term blew to bits any thought that the new majority might tread lightly and feel its way forward. The Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey was the most conspicuous decision, but the five conservatives, frequently but not invariably joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, also reworked the law of free exercise of religion, gun control, climate change, the regulatory state, and the Miranda Doctrine, and that was all in the last few weeks of the term. And there already are items on the docket for next term, which begins in October 2022, that portend further leaps right and changes to American society. The new majority charges ahead in apparent indifference to the court standing with the American public, which was already at precipitous lows before the overruling of Roe v. Wade, with which some 75% of the country disagree. And notwithstanding wide-ranging denunciation of the court's process and craft by legal scholars. To explore the takeaways from a wrecking ball of a term and the portents for an entire generation of court jurisprudence ahead, I am joined by three of the most knowledgeable and thoughtful observers of the court, and they are Daya Lithwick, a senior editor at Slate, where she writes Supreme Court Dispatches and Jurisprudence and hosts their fantastic Supreme Court podcast, Amicus. In 2018, she received the American Constitution Society's Progressive Champion Award, as well as the Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. The judges described her as the nation's best legal commentator for the last two decades. Daya, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me. Leah Littman a professor of law at the University of Michigan, where she teaches and writes on con law, federal courts, federal sentencing. Her scholarly work has appeared basically in every prestigious law review and her commentary in all the leading newspapers. She is also with Kate Shaw and Melissa Murray, one of the co-hosts and creators of Strict Scrutiny, a really fantastic podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court and a co-creator together with Emily Prifogal of Women Also Know Law, a tool to promote the work of women and non-binary academies. To our chagrin, she's no relation to me or my sister Jessica, her colleague on the Michigan Law faculty. Leah, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me, despite no family relation. Right. (laughs) Steve Vladek. The Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts of the University of Texas School of Law. He is the Supreme Court Analyst for CNN, and he co-hosts the National Security Law Podcast. Equally fantastic. This is one very high-octane podcast group, I got to say. He's also the co-author of the Leading National Security Law and Counterism Law Casebooks, Executive Editor of the Just Security Blog and Senior Editor of the Lawfare Blog and the Journal of National Security Law and Policy. He has testified before numerous congressional committees and argued over a dozen cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, and various lower federal and military courts. So that's some inhospitable and challenging tribunals. And one of these days, I might win one of them. Exactly. Thank you very much, Steve Vladek. So this was a watershed term, any way you look at it. Rather than canvassing individual decisions, as is sometimes the custom at the end of the term, I'd like to focus on the court overall and the trends and portents of the term. Let's start with Dobbs, the big uh, abortion decision. And let me frame the first question this way. It's a little bit aside from that, how'd you like to play Mrs. Lincoln? But Result aside, the overturning of a well-established constitutional right, 50 years vintage, what 
does the opinion and the reasoning say about the five conservatives who now control the court? I mean, where to start? I think the fact that Justice Alito barely revised his opinion from the leaked draft that we saw in February suggests a court that views itself as largely immune from criticism and kind of above any sort of fallibility. I think the way the opinion is written is extremely power hungry. They basically make clear that they have an opportunity to overrule Roe, and so they're going to do it. You know, I call this court the YOLO court in part for that reason. This entire case was manufactured because of a change in personnel at the court. Mississippi passed this law in 2018 after Justice Kennedy retired. It was unconstitutional at the time. Still unconstitutional now in some of our views Uh and change their argument from we're not overruling Roe to actually let's just do it and be legends after Justice Amy Barrett was confirmed to the court and they got what they wanted. I mean, the entire trajectory of this case and the tone of the opinion, the fact that it wasn't revised in response to commentary is all indications of a court that is just going to do whatever it wants and smash and grab along the way. Yeah, I guess I would really add that there was a whole cottage industry in the weeks after the Dobbs leak came out where incredibly smart historians and incredibly smart medical experts (laughs) meticulously fact-checked all the errors. And in addition to none of that mattering, People in the other cottage industry, which is the one we all operate in, said, this is the stuff that he's going to have to take out just to get Kavanaugh, right? right? Where he's just bitch slapping Anthony Kennedy for no reason and just insulting every Republican who's ever upheld Roe or Casey or their progeny. Which is something like a couple dozen over 50 years, right? It's shocking how just straight up mean this was. And so in addition to Leah's point, (laughs) nothing changed except adding in even snarkier attacks on the concurrence and the dissent. But given the opportunity to get it right, the willful determination to get it wrong and not care, and then to exult, I guess we're going to talk about this, but to me, the thing that's frightening about just what Leah just described is the leak didn't have to be the final product. The fact that it was the final product is emblematic of a court that simply does not care and that in fact rejoices in not caring. And all of us who have spent our lives talking about the court being at least somewhat susceptible to what the public thinks now need to figure out what that means. Yeah, I mean, I I think Leah and Dahlia said Virtually all of it should be said. I'll just add, I mean, I think it's worth stressing the Kavanaugh part of this story, right? I think we had all assumed that if there was any chance of salvaging any part of the right, it was going to be Kavanaugh. At the very least, much like Justice Kennedy used to have this moderating effect, whether he was with the lefties or the righties, we thought that would do something here. And it just didn't. Ruth Marcus has my favorite line about any of the current justices in her book on Justice Kavanaugh which is from one of his colleagues on the D.C. Circuit, who told her, quote, he's a fantastic colleague, except when it matters, Mm -hmm. unquote. And I think this is the moral of the story. Here was the case that mattered. Here was the term that mattered. And rather than be fantastic colleagues, rather than be conciliatory, this was a court that, you know, Leah's line is it's the YOLO court. Mine is it's a court in a hurry. However you slice it, it is a court, as Dahlia says so pointedly, that just doesn't care about what people who don't agree with it think. And that's a very dangerous thing for the republic. Yeah, I'd like to get to that in a second, but just to follow up on Kavanaugh, I actually found his separate opinion particularly cloying and irritating because it seemed just designed to say, don't hate me, I'm a good guy, and very little else except this pretense of we're now just having completely eviscerated any recognition of women's interests. What we're doing is just an act of judicial neutrality, returning it to the states. So Dahlia, well, all three of you are exactly right. It comes out, the opinion in the legal community gets totally lambasted for many points, but the basic one is, guys, if you do this, 
There's no distinguishing Obergefell and other unenumerated rights. And so there's been quite a lot of discussion since on this topic. How vulnerable are these other unenumerated rights? And you have this provocative opinion by Thomas saying, serve them up, let's do them all. But, you know, it strikes me that notwithstanding Alito's and Kavanaugh's assurances, they're not in control of Obergefell's future. They're not in control of Lawrence versus Texas' future because there's going to be states who are completely chuffed at this result. They're going to pass new versions. People are going to be harmed. They're going to serve it up to the court. Also, including extreme versions, of course, of the abortion statutes like heartbeat bills. What's the court going to do? It can't just duck them maybe once, but it's definitely going to return with a vengeance, no? And then they'll have this big precedent and its impoverished reasoning to be the main pertinent case to apply. I don't take the assurances in the majority as being worth anything. I mean, in addition to Justice Thomas's concurrence, Justice Alito himself has joined a writing with Justice Thomas encouraging the court to overrule Obergefell. So to say, well, these other rights definitely aren't at issue, we're not interested in revisiting those is not serious. It is completely unexplained. It doesn't make any sense of the opinion. And it's not just us commentators who think that. It's clear that Republican political officials don't think that's where the court is heading because you have the Texas Attorney General, the Governor of Utah, all of the gubernatorial candidates in the Michigan Republican primary all calling for the courts to overrule Obergefell. Yeah, I mean, it's a race to the bottom, right? I agree completely with Leah. It's not worth the paper it's written on. And it's clearly in violation of what we know several of these justices have already said. And it does raise to me the slightly interesting question, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, but I've been mulling it, which is if this is just a kind of PR endeavor, certainly by Kavanaugh explicitly and by the majority through bad distinction drawing, I guess I did find myself wondering why on this issue the YOLO court pumps the brakes. Like, why is it willing to just not give a damn about anything and somehow make these admittedly completely ephemeral and pointless promises about both gay rights and contraception? It just made me wonder if there's some like soft underbelly to the whole we don't give a damn vibe because something was happening that led at minimum Kavanaugh to feel that they had to mollify us with this false promise. Dahlia, I think you put your finger on it. I suspect that there are parts of the majority opinion that were written for Kavanaugh's benefit and that his concurrence is basically saying, don't worry, rich Republicans, you can still leave your state to get an abortion. And I think that's a marker, right? There's a lot to say about the joint dissent. I thought one of the most analytically devastating passages was the discussion of how either the majority is being incredibly hypocritical or it's lying. Um, It's one or the other. (laughs) And, And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. And I think it very well may be that Justice Kavanaugh knows that if and when these cases come to him, he's going to join X number of justices to strike down, right, travel bans and or contraceptive bans. The problem is all the damage that will happen until then, right, which is lower courts aren't bound by his concurrence. Lower courts don't have to follow his concurrence. Lower courts can point out, as the dissent does, that the concurrence isn't consistent with the analysis in the majority opinion. And so I think what doesn't get said enough, and what we've seen in Texas, of course, since last September, is just how devastating the chilling effects of these kinds of developments can be, even if the Supreme Court never actually upholds these laws on their merits. So it's a little convenient to just wave your hands and say, of course, we'll strike those down if and when they get here. The number of people whose rights would be messed with between now and then, right? People who would think they couldn't travel, people who would either pursue an illegal abortion or just bring a pregnancy to term that they weren't planning on bringing to term. I don't know how you account for that. I mean, we've never had a regime like this. First, I want to say, I this is a subject for another day, but I think his right to travel analysis is pretty dubious. Unless he thinks it isn't. I mean, the problem is, is it's not analysis. It right. is just a statement of his conclusion. <laughs> well, more than that, specifically inconsistent with their right to travel jurisprudence. 
And I think it's even more than that, Steve, because even if it's cabined to abortion, the enforcement efforts, when this is combined with the zeal of people who are, you know, elected officials who want there to never be another abortion in the country, when you really try to imagine that as a matter of enforcement, it is head spinning. Let me follow up on your point quickly, and then we'll move off Dobbs. You say a, a huge majority, and it's true, disagree with the opinion. You know, it's a devil's advocate point, but so what? Counter-majoritarian institution, the Supreme Court. So should the court care? Should we care that 75% or so of the country disagrees with the bottom line result? So I do think that part of why we have a Supreme Court is to buck majoritarian sentiments in cases where it's absolutely essential to protect minority rights. But here it's the other way around. Here the court is undoing a right that is actually largely popular and doing so under the either disingenuous or simply ill-informed premise that returning it to the democratic process is going to fix things. Failing to account, as as Leah and her podcast co-hosts have written so powerfully, failing to account for all of the ways in which the court's own jurisprudence has actually messed up that democratic process. I mean, listen, I live in Texas. Texas is a 55-45 state where Republicans have a supermajority in one chamber of the state legislature and a near supermajority in the other, where the most important elections are the primaries, where the Republican candidates who are the closest to the platform of the Republican GOP party of Texas win the elections. And so the notion that returning this to the democratic process is somehow a salve, I think is both inverting the court's historical relationship and failing to account for just how undemocratic the democratic process is. Look, I think it's a very fair point, and it's one thing, individual decisions, but when they are this out of whack and they're out of whack with the legal community, the few times that's happened, I'm not a court historian, but still, I think it poses ill for the court. And I do think you have this indomitable majority that really almost is proud of that, almost came of age as as sort of defining themselves in this extreme 5%, and this really was their chance come hell or high water to do it. I also want to make one larger point, which is part of what I've been really struck by is stipulating what Steve just said, which is that by all means, we want a minority protective court. That's how we got Brown v. Board, right? That's essential. And nobody is saying the court should follow the polls. I think one of the things that is really alarming, and it goes to this larger question of stare decisis, and it goes to this larger question of jolts to the system that the old Chief Justice Roberts purported to care about, and it goes to the court, I think, just taking a wrecking ball to the tests, not just the undue burden test here, to the test in Bruin, to the Lemon test. The the court just basically, in every single major overrule and in every single major fake overrule, said, not only do we not care about precedent, and we can talk about that, but also the test is what I say, what I think history is, what I think too much religious coercion is. And I just want to marry like that to Steve's point, which I think Leah wrote this week, which is there's no way for majorities to vote on anything if we don't actually know what the law is coming out of any of these cases. I don't actually know, coming out of the EPA case, how you could craft a regulation that would satisfy the court because the court didn't tell us. I actually do not know what would satisfy the court on a gun regulation, because the court doesn't tell us. And so I want to just say the court is not just arrogating to itself the power to overturn cases. It is also hiding the ball and not telling us what the test is. And that's really, really chilling if you're trying to think about responding to any of this. And the chaos that Steve described all over the country as clinics try to figure out what they can do and people are trying to sort out if they can put plan B in the mail. And it's not clear when an ectopic pregnancy is sufficiently catastrophic that you can do a termination. This is all because the court just didn't tell us anything. They just told us Ignore what you thought you knew because now it's wrong. And I think the nihilism in that project has not been sufficiently explored. So I think it's an awesome point. I'm thinking in particular their free exercise jurisprudence. They just sort of start to state facts and present things that if you think at all seriously about them, you realize 
We've just gone a whole phase shift to the right, but we don't know exactly how and why. This is a little hard to frame, but let me try. I think it's important. How to measure or account for the court's profound disconnect with previous courts in most of American society. Is it sort of a factual, countercultural thing where they're solicitous about certain people like the coach praying at midfield and others and, and it all derives from there? Or is it more sort of Federalist Society legal and received wisdom about specific overreaching liberal precedent? What's your best guess of what does sort of drive them? I think the two things that you identified are just inextricably interwoven, right? The conservative legal movement, the Federalist Society doesn't exist completely separate and apart from the cultural counter-revolution. These two things are in symbiosis with one another. And so some justices probably conduct themselves in a way that makes them look like they are more influenced by one category than the other. Justice Alito, for example, looks like he is just channeling Fox News a lot of the time. His dissent in the Remain in Mexico case talks about the surge of migrants at the border, and that's not unique for his writings on immigration. Whereas other justices, I think like Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch, their self-identity is, I am built in this elite system of meritocracy where all of my ideas have been put through this Federalist Society system of debate. And that is how I came to these views. And they just conduct themselves differently. But the fact that they are always getting to the same result, and those results are the policy preferences of the Republican Party, like these things just can't be completely separated from one another. I agree. But I think of Gorsuch discussing the coach on the field. And the way he describes that coach. I think a lot of people, maybe all four of us, would see that coach. And it's just not the words and sentiments that would come to our minds. The Coach Kennedy example, I think, is actually a really good one because having nothing to do with how much we sympathize with Justice Gorsuch's portrayal of the facts, there's the rather separate issue of just how inaccurate Justice Gorsuch's portrayal of the facts was. And I don't think we can assume bad faith. It's I think it's sloppiness. But tendentious sloppiness, no? All I'll say is Judge Mylon Smith, who is no one's right. idea of a firebrand, who is a <laughs> Bush appointee on the Ninth yeah. Circuit, right? He was the one who accused the lawyers for Coach Kennedy in the Ninth Circuit of advancing a, quote, deceitful narrative. That is all over the case. And yet the majority in the Kennedy opinion expounds and reiterates this very deceitful narrative probably at least in part because they couldn't actually rule for Coach Kennedy if they had gone with the version of the facts as so, I think, thoroughly articulated by Justice Sotomayor in her dissent. A really small, almost sort of trifling, but I think telling example of this, in Shin versus Ramirez, right, the really, really problematic post-conviction case, there was a factual error in the opinion. There was a motion to correct the factual error, which could prejudice the prisoner on remand, that Arizona did not oppose, and the court still doesn't grant it. And so the problem is that even for those like me who are not inclined to assume that all these folks are acting in bad faith, if it's not bad faith, it certainly is a rather alarming level of indifference to things that ought to be much less heavier of a lift for a court that supposedly cares about such things. I would just say that one of the things that is so manifest this term is the constitutionalization of grievance. And that the sense of being aggrieved and that because you're aggrieved, you can assume bad faith in everyone else. Everyone else is lying to you. And therefore, anything you do is justifiable. And in some sense, it's just the court following a polarized. I mean, this is the way Congress has been working for years. This is the way the American public talks to each other. And I was really struck by two things. One, Amy Coney Barrett snapping, just read the opinion, when in fact she was talking about the shadow docket. And the idea that she genuinely thinks that she is writing out fully realized doctrine. And in the same breath, I can't remember when I read this winter, that she will not read anything negative about herself. She has an almost complete 
remotely functioning screening system so she doesn't ever hear criticism. And I think, you know, that's certainly Clarence Thomas, who canceled his subscription proudly to the Washington Post. But I think that part of what you're asking and part of what I think both Leah and Steve are saying in different configurations is once you are of the view that the other side is just flat out lying, you can write Gorsuch's opinion in the Kennedy case because whether he thinks he's lying is almost immaterial. What he thinks is that the school board is lying. And I think that what we are seeing, we've seen versions of this, but to just get a full facial blast all term long of grievance that therefore justifies punching back twice as hard is quite terrifying, but I can see where it led to and where it's going to continue to lead. That's a very interesting way of thinking about it. All right, let's turn for a few moments to the Chief Justice John Roberts. Three years ago, there was discussion of his being the most influential, powerful Chief Justice going. So extremely poignant detail, the biggest case for sure of his tenure, and he is 100% alone. There's almost a sense of Oh, pretty please, won't can we go incremental and and the five giving him the back of his hand. So where is he now as a chief? Is he throwing in the towel on trying to temporize the five? There are often a lot of six three opinions. Where do you see his role now and his impact on the court? I just think this idea of the lonely, moderate chief justice mm-hmm. is wildly overstated. The chief Mm -hmm. justice is very much with the other five horsemen of the apocalypse on basically all of the other major cases we got, demolishing the separation of church and state, greatly expanding religious entities' entitlement to government support and subsidization, greatly restricting states' ability to enact gun regulations, kneecapping the administrative state, making it easier for states to execute innocent people, making it impossible, not impossible, but quite difficult to enforce your Miranda rights, undoing Bivens, the ability to sue federal officials for federal constitutional violations. He's not out there by himself trying to moderate the court on these issues. He is very much with the core of the conservatives. He's been the same on voting rights. I mean, he was joining Justice Alito's opinion, weakening the voting rights, as well as with the conservatives dismantling the disclosure requirements last term. So I just don't want people to have in their heads when they think of John Roberts, this moderate who is trying so desperately to moderate the court. He is all gung-ho on so many of these projects that it just so happened that in Dobbs, he wanted to overrule one part of Casey and Roe and not all of it. And that's our best example of this. Just to piggyback on what Leah said, I mean, I think the difference for Chief Justice Roberts is procedure versus substance. He's willing to go everywhere the other conservatives want to go on the bottom lines in almost all these cases, as long as there's a plausible procedural way to get there. And the only place where he really stood up to the conservatives at all this term was on emergency orders, on the shadow docket, right, where he dissents in the SB8 case. He dissents in the Alabama redistricting case. He joins Kagan's dissent in the Clean Water Act case, right, two days after Justice Barrett's, I think, very ill-conceived speech at the Ronald Reagan Library. And what's telling about those dissents is that he's not saying, I think, that the law should be as the liberals want it to be. He's just saying, you know, I think that we ought to at least preserve the semblance of regular order as we push toward these. I mean, I think the Alabama redistricting case is the perfect example of this. He is absolutely a vote to overrule Gingles and to narrow, if not altogether eviscerate, vote dilution claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. He just didn't think it was appropriate for the court to do that through an unsigned, unexplained emergency order. I don't think we give participation trophies for those dissents. (laughs) If anything, it's not like, thank you, Chief Justice Roberts. It's more like, it's crazy that, like, he's alone on that. And didn't he flip this week? Yes. At least he did not note his dissent. Me being the shadow docket pedant, I've got to point out that it's possible he dissented and just didn't record it. Okay. But if he cares about the optics, it's amazing to take a stand uh, in the Alabama case and then not take a stand. I don't even know that he cares about processes, Steve. I think he cares about appearance. 
And I think that his whole life has been triangulating against this image he has of himself as, you know, another John Marshall and another William Rehnquist, somebody who's willing to put the interests of the court before his own. And I think that when he just got absolutely clobbered in May around the leak, the conservative legal movement just turned feral on him. They were literally blaming him personally for not releasing Dobbs immediately in May. He was endangering his colleague's life. They went insane on him. And I think he just looked around and said, if I can't beat him, join him. And rather than end the term being in any way principled or showing leadership, just completely caved, I guess the little flick we got, if my theory is he could have said something in the Louisiana case and chose not to, the little flick we get is this insane Remain in Mexico case, (laughs) and that's supposed to stand for him being a moderate centrist showing leadership. I mean, really? That's it? That's him modeling being John Marshall. By the way, Steve, your thesis as well is well illustrated in Dobbs itself. His argument is they first came in and asked not to overrule. So why didn't we just do that? And why don't we just say that 15 weeks makes it and and what? Just leave this very question to another day. I am not here to defend Chief Justice Roberts. I think the one obvious point here is that like he just doesn't matter anymore, right? Whether he's dissenting or not is no longer relevant. And I think if you actually look at the the so-called Martin Quinn scores for the term, which no one really should do, it turns out that the median justice ends up being Gorsuch, not Kavanaugh. But I think that's actually deeply misleading, that in every case that matters, this court's going to go as Brett Kavanaugh wants it to go. And maybe there are a handful of criminal law cases and tribal sovereignty cases where Gorsuch really is the leading indicator. But people want to say it's the Alito court, it's the Thomas court. No, this is the Kavanaugh court. And a Kavanaugh who is not nearly as close to the chief as I think a lot of folks had predicted and maybe even expected when he was nominated in 2018. I just want to say I did not predict or expect that. No one would ever accuse Leah of taking the the optimistic (laughs) prediction in this space. I am unwilling to give the court any of their names because all of them are just pleased as punch about all of the things they are about to do, and I do not want to give them the satisfaction of having their name associated with all of these things they have dreamt of doing ever since they were however many years old. Well, this is the point they came of age at. Let me just jump one step back to Roberts, though. Here's the problem. Look, Roberts is smart and writes well and can make good points. Other than him, it's Kagan. And the five don't give a shit. You would think in a different configuration, he could make a sort of very strong piercing. Still, it just doesn't matter however clean or analytical or compelling. You have a court where five are seemingly indifferent to the strongest counter arguments. And that, in a sense, is not a court. Well, just remember what Steve was saying, which is not that long ago, we talked wistfully about Roberts with his phenomenal EQ and Elena Kagan with her phenomenal EQ and how they were able to sort of get in there and take out your liver without you even noticing and jujitsu, all sorts of magical (laughs) compromises without anyone knowing that it had even happened. And the fact that both Kagan... And Roberts have been almost completely sidelined, goes to this larger point, and maybe it's the Amy Coney Barrett, I don't even read the other side, much less care what they think, but the idea that the two like savvy negotiators on the court are now completely irrelevant, I think tells you all you need to know about how much this court is in play. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, Wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. 
In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay. But what white Burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white Burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More, where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let me ask you this. So back to the evisceration of Roberts around the leak. Lots of stories about how incredibly polarized, dysfunctional, nasty, full of resentment and unhappiness the court is. How much do you credit that? And do you think it's a ongoing issue even after summer vacation? Is this court hobbled by its mistrust for one another? I don't really think it's a question of do we credit the stories that were coming out about the court. Some of the justices were just flat out saying this to the press. You had Justice Thomas basically saying the chief justice came in and ruined the court. And then you have people, quote, close to the conservative justices saying there's a price to be paid for the chief justice upholding the Affordable Care Act. So it's not stories coming out about what it's like at the court. It's the justices themselves publicly sticking their knives into each other and the chief justice in particular, now that they don't have to care about his vote. And given that they've been apparently harboring these grievances for over a decade, I can't imagine that they all go away over this summer. I realize that this year has seemed like a century, but remember Maskgate, <laughs> right? We are not yet six months removed from the Gorsuch Sotomayor, no, we're really good friends, contretemps. <laughs> and you know, listen, I think it'll be years before we actually really know just how bad things are. But I'll just say from the perspective of someone who watches the court every year, there are lots of things about this term that were off. Even if you just want to look at like the little itty bitty public signs, weeks where opinions usually come out where none did, right? Sniping mm -hmm. in dissents, the likes of which we haven't seen before. I mean, the iterative criticisms in the liberals' dissents about what the conservatives were up to tells its own story about just how dysfunctional the court has become. The court's way behind in filling its docket for next term, which may not be a bad thing. We need more leaks to tell us what's going on, but I will just say that it's impossible not to sort of look at Justice Breyer's departure as the end of it. Well, the era ended a while ago, but the end of the end of the era. The end of the professed era. There's this great quote from Scalia when O'Connor retired, where in his note to her, right, he said, you were the glue that held us together. Who's going to do it once you're gone? I think there was truth in that, even if he didn't care about that truth. And I think that that was a cohort of justices who, even when they disagree with each other, got along pretty well, even Scalia and Ginsburg, right? We are now 16 years past O'Connor's retirement, and there's no middle. But this also goes to the stuff Leah's written about elite institutions and the extent to which the prestige of the court is all bound up with this kind of courtly talk of we're all friends and we're all pals, as though that has any intrinsic meaning. And what it is, is code for this is a certain kind of club for a certain kind of people, and we take care of our own. And I don't know, there's a part of me, and I say this with all due respect to Justice Breyer, who would love to read the afterword to his poor book, the most ill-timed book in publishing history, about how we're all friends and nothing is personal and this isn't ideological. And I hope he's like beavering away on the afterword in which he says, Wow, 
I just was so wrong. But I do think there is a part of this wheels coming off process we're all describing, which is that I think there's always been this category error where the court could say as long as Ginsburg and Scalia were friends then there wasn't a problem. And being friends isn't a proxy for respect or politeness or listening to other arguments or being open-minded. It just means you like to go on safari together. So to my mind, maybe getting rid of some of this completely fake collegiality that is just about we don't stab each other with our shrimp forks in the lunchroom is useful because at least we can call it what it is, which is a political enterprise that is conducted by political road rage. You know, I think there's a lot to it, but I would just say that I think that's overstated. I believe that when they've had a reservoir of goodwill, it could be called on, at least in certain kinds of cases, at least they would listen. It wasn't always a complete shell. I do agree that especially as he was writing it, Breyer seemed to be either wildly ingenuous or or who knows what. But it's part of a bigger problem. They're supposed to be able to persuade each other. And there's just seems no shot at that now. And no, well, you know, he's a smart guy. Maybe I'll see it from his point of view. There's just so little of that on the court. And Kagan, I think, is a pretty good example, too. That was a very biting dissent at the end. Well, I used to say we're all textless now. I guess I was wrong. It feels like she has this very stark choice between maybe playing it super nice and capitulating, capitulating, capitulating to get one, I don't know, preemption case or something, or just has to, one after the other, say power, not reason, is the currency of this court's decisions. All right. For people listening, I think they have a pretty general hold on the views of the court toward especially individual liberties. A big part, and we saw this last week with the EPA case of the court, is its vision of federal and state government. There's real hostility among the five, right? And we can see it likely playing out in the next few terms against the administrative state. What's their beef exactly and where are they going with it? I mean, the administrative state is how industries are regulated today, seeing as how the Republican Party and the Republican appointed justices aren't huge fans of regulation. Some of that hostility is now channeled into hostility toward the administrative state. It also reflects this separation of powers formalism. You know, they look at the Constitution, they squint real hard. Mm -hmm. They don't see the administrative state in a separate article. And so they say Congress has to be the one that makes the laws. These administrative agencies aren't in there. So that's where it's coming from. That's what I'm asking. You think it's just this sort of pristine view of this is doesn't fit into the Constitution? No, 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 no. My first answer was it is just a deregulatory bonanza for them because agencies are just how regulations happen today rather than legislation. Yeah, I mean, I I would just add, I mean, I think the administrative law stuff is such a perfect example of so many of the pathologies we've been talking about today. Uh There's unanswerable scholarship, including from two of Leah's colleagues at the University of Michigan, Nick Bagley, Julian Davis-Mortensen, about how this recent effort by conservatives to revived something called the non-delegation doctrine, has no actual substantive defense in founding our understandings. And in the Western University, there's a footnote in, I think it's in the Gorsuch concurrence, that basically says, well, you know, that's one article, but here are 15 articles coming out the other way, as if we count these things by volume. Right. But Harry, this right. is the point. It's, it's so consistent with Republican politics, right? Which is to sort of have a great talking point that totally belies what is actually going on. The talking point is that administrative delegation is anti-democratic because you're giving all this power to unelected, unaccountable executive branch, faceless bureaucrats, Anthony Fauci, right? If you really want to sort of bring everything together. And there are two different ironies in that. The first is, this is the same Supreme Court that has spent the last 12 years dismantling all of the protections that mid-level bureaucrats had from being directly accountable to democratically elected superiors. It is no longer the case that there are lots of high-level, mid-level bureaucrats who have serious independence from the president. But second, the narrative about delegation is that 
it's much more democratic to leave it up to Congress. Everybody knows Congress does not have the institutional capacity to assign radio frequencies, to set national ambient air quality standards, to sort of micro-legislate. And so it's not actually pro-democracy. What it is, as Leah says, it's anti-regulation. And if the court were more honest about it, we'd be in a better place. But, you know, they have to sort of perpetrate this narrative that actually what they're really doing is they're protecting democracy by grabbing power as a court away from people who are actually democratically accountable. If anything, what surprised me about the dissent in West Virginia versus EPA was that it wasn't even more strident, because I think this is quite a remarkable development for the court to endorse. All right. I'd like to serve up a kind of summary question. This will sound like puckish or tongue-in-cheek, but I don't mean it that way. Was the term an unmitigated disaster? And I don't mean, you know, oh, Gorsuch had an interesting legislative history. Basically, of all the terms that we could have had starting in October, was it about as bad as it got? Or do you see any silver linings or any mitigation to the disaster? So that's my question for each of the three of you. Unmitigated disaster and why? This is going to get dark, but there's a moment in Schindler's List you know, where the husband yeah. says to the wife... You already know it's going to get dark. <laughs> yes, but there's a moment where the husband and the wife are in the ghetto and it says, you know, look at it this way. The husband says, it could always be worse, <laughs> right? Harry, it could always be worse. Was this an unmitigated disaster? I mean, I think it was as problematic a term for the court as an institution as there has been in my lifetime. And that includes the October 2000 term, which had Bush versus Gore. And we can talk about individual cases, but in the aggregate, the direction the court is moving, the speed it's moving in it, and the complete lack of care for how it's eroding public faith in the court on the part of a growing cohort of the American population is as troubling a term for the court as an institution as any, certainly in the last 75 years. I completely agree with Steve. This was about as bad as it could be. Of course, you can always dream up ways in which it could have been worse. You know, the justices could have formally announced, we will now decide cases by consulting our magic eight ball. They didn't do that, right? Honestly, it's not clear if that would be worse at this point, at least from some perspectives it would be. But it was almost as bad as it could be in every single case. And in the aggregate, it is just hard to overstate how consequential, how far-reaching, and how quickly and sloppily the court was moving across all of these different areas. Maybe I would say, too, up until late Thursday, I was like, it could be worse. They could grant the independent state legislature doctrine case, but then they did. (laughs) Um, So then it got worse. But I, I think... Two things that I would just add. One is cosine on the sloppiness, the not caring, the fact that there are many, many, many lawyers trying to figure out how to move forward, whether it's environmental protection, whether it is health care, whether it is gun regulation, whether it is school boards trying to determine if everybody gets to pray. Nobody knows what to do. And I think that that chaos and the chilling effect of not knowing what to do and assuming that what you do is unlawful is just catastrophic. And I think that we don't fully understand that knock-on effect of just basically having, as I see it, the derivative constitutional principle this term, all due respect to my academics on this call, is just that there are going to be winners and losers. And the losers are going to keep losing. That's the huge point is you can also like look forward for 25 years or more. And I, I'll just say quickly, you know, the combination of pattern results and cavalier reasoning and indifference and something captured, I think, by both Leah and Steve's formulation. I have trouble seeing what I could have said in September that would be worse than what we actually got. But I think what Dahlia said is also critically important, which is, and it's not going to get better next year. Fucking right. Yeah. The term is going to start with the court taking a hatchet to affirmative action, which I mean, I think as recently as five years ago, we would have thought was unthinkable, right? The grant in Moore versus Harper is stunningly important for, oh, I don't know, the future of democracy in this country. Moore versus Harper, in some respects, could be an even worse decision than anything we had this term, depending upon how far the court goes in allowing state legislatures to override their own state courts on questions of state law. And 
The problem is, is that I think there's a feeling right now generally of powerlessness on the part of those who are troubled by this because Democrats have spent forever being terrible about the courts as an issue. One more cause of so many for consternation and concern. All right, we have just a minute left. Time for our final feature of Talking Five, in which we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer it in five words or fewer. This week's question is, where will the replacement of Steve Breyer by newly minted Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson be most felt in the coming term? Five words or fewer, anybody. Five words. Criminal and administrative law, sigh. I'll just say, phenomenally high EQ, also sigh. Undeserved additional legitimacy and crim. Just occasionally in U.S. reports. All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Dahlia, Leah, and Steve. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. We're available as well on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we posted a conversation with former firearm executive Ryan Bussey about how the rise of the AR-15 has changed gun culture in America, and another with Juliet Kayyem about the impact of the 1-6 Committee on the Republican Elite and the potential recasting of Donald Trump as a big old loser. So we have a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what there is and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Helena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.